Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. Exodus chapter 20 this morning. If you want to go ahead and turn your Bibles there. This is the chapter that uh, if you grew up in a liturgical church, uh, maybe this was something that was repeated. I grew up in a church uh, as a kid and, and, and it seemed like uh, practically every Sunday the pastor quoted that in the beginning of the worship service, but uh, the Ten Commandments. So that's what we're looking at this morning, the Ten Commandments. It's also known as the Law of God. It was, uh, as I was mentioning, what Katharina mentioned, it was written with the finger of God on two stone tablets. And uh, we find that in Exodus chapter 31 actually tells us that God wrote it with a finger of God. Uh, now, just to maybe hopefully eliminate some confusion. So chapter 20 is the law of God. Uh, chapters 21 to 23 is the law of Moses. It's still from God, but it's Moses who recorded it. And Leviticus is also deals with the law of Moses. Now, the law of God that we're going to be looking at this morning, it's applicable for all people for all time. Even us today, it's applicable for us. The law of Moses was for the Jews exclusively, and we'll try to point those out as we go through this, these uh, coming up chapters um, but, you know, in, it was interesting. Uh, I happened to be just finishing up the book of Deuteronomy in my own uh, uh, devotions. And I was in Deuteronomy chapter 33 the other day, and I was reading this. Verse 2, it says, And he said, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned on them from Seir. He shone forth from Mount Paran, and he came with ten thousands of saints. From his right hand came a fiery law for them. And as I was reflecting on that passage of Scripture, I'm like, what does it mean, a fiery law? And I was trying to, to, to do the, the, the word search, and it's just, it's fiery. It's what it means. You know, there's like, there's no other explanation behind it. And so I was meditating on that. What does that mean, a fiery law? And what I thought about was, you know, when you have a fire, a flames, it leaves an indelible mark, right? And whatever it burns, if it doesn't completely consume it, there's there's like marks on the wall. If you had a if we had an electrical fire, you know, there'd be like some black streaks going up by the outlets or something like that. Um, fire leaves its mark on whatever it comes in contact with. And the law of God that we're looking at this morning, it wasn't invented at Mount Sinai. It was not like this is like all of a sudden brand new. Um, uh, in some aspects of the law that we'll be looking at this morning uh, was new or, or maybe a better description was expanded. The revelation was expanded for, for the people. Uh, but God's law, it's like that flame, that fiery law. It left an indelible mark since creation on man's heart. God had left it on man's heart on, in their conscience since creation. I'll give you an example. All cultures, and I'm, 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 maybe I'm broad brushing a lot of this, but I, I think I'm right. For all cultures, murder is wrong. Murder is wrong. Kindness is good. I don't know of any culture that would say kindness is bad. Kindness is good. There are certain responsibilities that are associated with belonging to a family, a man cannot have any woman he wants. Remember when Abraham was in Egypt and he had, he's told uh, Pharaoh that his sister, that Sarah was his sister. You know, there's, there was a certain rules, a certain decorum that even the pagans uh, lived by. Where did they get that information? Where did they get that, the, that morality? Uh, it was from God. In all cultures, theft is bad. Justice is good. Bravery is good and cowardice 
is bad. In all cultures, betrayal is bad and loyalty is good. Truthfulness is good. Now, some cultures, uh, lying is acceptable if it, if it involves your enemy. If it's, a, if it's your friend, you need to be truthful, but if it's your enemy, you can lie to them. But generally, all cultures say that truthfulness is good. So it was, it was an indelible, it was left on the conscience of man. So it's not like this is a brand new revelation. There's, this is all new. It just was invented today as we're reading chapter 20. Now, the Ten Commandments, the original Hebrew uh, describes it, it just calls it the Ten Words. And uh, ten, of course, being the number of completeness in the Bible. And so we have ten commandments that we'll be looking at this morning. Um, the fifth commandment we'll be looking at this morning, honoring your father and your mother. That's a transition at that one uh, from the first tablet, many people believe, to the second tablet. The first tablet, all the commands on the first tablet deal with our relationship to God himself. The second tablet uh, deals with our relation to man and so we're going to go through each of these commandments. We'll start with the first commandment there in verse 1 of chapter 20. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. Very first commandment. First of all, the Lord God is revealing to, uh, to the children of Israel, and of course revealing to us this morning, who he is. He says... Uh, notice that he doesn't say, I'm the Lord God, but he says, I am the Lord, your God. Uh, there are other gods. And I say that with a little G, you know, I don't capitalize it with a little G. There are other gods. The Bible describes the God of this age in 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, who blinds the minds and the hearts of people so that they don't see the light of the gospel. Of course, that's speaking of Lucifer, Satan. In Matthew 6.24, we read of the God of Mammon the God of money and wealth and riches. Uh, in Daniel 5.23, we talk, it talks about gods of man's creation. It says, gods of silver and gold, bronze and iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know. So there are other, other gods that people worship, but only there's only the Lord God, Jehovah Almighty. And what the Lord God wants, he doesn't want us, he doesn't want them, he didn't want us to depend on a false deity uh, that's eventually going to fail you because they, they can't do anything for you that's false, what you're worshiping, if you're not worshiping the Lord God. And he is the Lord, he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. So not only who he is, but what he's done is what he's revealing. You know, God's the one who created Adam. God's the one who spared Noah and his family from the flood. God is the one who called Abraham and made a great nation descend from him, who through Abraham all the nations of the earth would be blessed. God's the one who protected and raised up Moses, the one who wrote these first five books of the Bible to be the deliverer of his people from Egypt. It was all God's doing. In fact, that phrase, I brought you out of the house of bondage or also out of the land of Egypt, I counted it 26 times. You can find that in the Old Testament, repeated over and over and over again. See, not only is he the Lord God, not only is he the Lord your God, but he is the Lord God who is actively involved in your life and in my life. I, 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 you know, I wonder how many times have I been spared from a, a, you know, an accident that I didn't even realize was happening because God's actively involved in my life. Same with your lives. 
What, what have you been spared of? You, you maybe have no clue of what you've been spared of, what God has done actively involved in your life, bringing you into relationship with him. I wasn't looking for a relationship with the Lord. He, he was pursuing me, you know, praise God he did. And so therefore, he says, you shall have no other gods before me. That's the first commandment. The second commandment, verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments." Now, what this command is not saying is that you can't have any photographs or paintings or images of, you know, you can't have a statue of a, you know, whatever, if you like statues and stuff like that. But what he's saying or what the command is, is that we do not attach an image of anything that is created and worship it as God. You know, we, we have something that we're going to worship as God. I'll give you an example. The ancient Egyptians, when we were going through uh, earlier in, uh, in the book of Exodus, we talked about all the deities of, of ancient Egypt. And, uh, you know, of course, the sun being this great, uh, you know, star in the sky, the, the, the Egyptians, the ancient Egyptians, worshipped it as Ra, the sun god. That was their substitute for God. The Native American, uh, you know, they, they see this eagle soaring through the sky. It's just, it's a magnificent, magnificent creature. And the, so then they worship the eagle. Um, and you could go through all different cultures where man has created an image or taken an image of creation and worshiped that as God. And I think that's what this command has everything to do with. Jesus said in John 4, 24, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. You know, even today, people fashion God into an image that they want to worship. I'll give you an example, uh, uh, the feminist movement. They said, God's not a man, God's a woman, you know, and then you have pictures of this woman, and that's God. That's, that's the God that I worship. It's a woman. Uh, other people, uh, you know, the, they say, well, God's just like me. They don't actually say that, but they'll say, you know, my God doesn't do that, or my God doesn't do that. Well, it sounds like you're describing yourself, and that's what people do. <coughs> It even goes beyond that, though, to using an image to enhance our worship of God, and people do that even today. Uh, icons, like, that's the thing I think of, is you know, people take this, and that, that's, that's something that they can, they, they can use that they enhance their worship of God, and we're not to do that. God's a spirit, and we're to worship him in spirit and in truth. And then we're told why God does not want man to worship any carved image of him. He says, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Not only is he a jealous God, but Exodus 34, 14 says, for you shall worship no other God for the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. That word jealous, it's interesting. I was in a Bible study once with some guy and he's like, hey, if uh, I thought jealousy is a sin, I'm like, it is. Well, how come God's jealous then? You know, like, okay, wait a minute. And you know what it is? This word in the Hebrew, jealous, it only occurs six times in the Bible, and it's always associated with God. We translate it as jealous, but it's only used of God. It can also, be, it can also mean zealous. 
Um, he's a jealous God who will not tolerate the worship of other gods. What this is doing, what God is doing is he's describing uh, his attitude towards the worship of false gods. It arouses his jealousy, not in an evil way. We think of it in an evil. Jealousy is evil, but this is in God's, you know, describing God. And, and it's never negative with God. With man, it, it, usually it's almost always negative, right? Um, I like to think of it more as zealous, that God is zealous for me. And he is zealous for you. He's zealous for all of us. And I don't mean all of us collectively, although he is, but I mean all of us, like every aspect of my life, every aspect of your life. Um, you know, sometimes we tend to compartmentalize our relationship with the Lord. You know, I, 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 you know, my public life, I act like a Christian. I have this relationship with God, but my private life, well, that's mine. You know, I just, I live my, I live the way I want to live. I don't, I don't need to listen to God or I don't, you know, I don't respect him or whatever. Uh, or maybe it's the opposite. You know, at my home, I'll be a Christian at home, but once I get to work, I'm a different person. Or, you know, uh, my church attendance. I'll be a Christian when I'm at church, but you know what? My leisure time is my time. And that's when, you know, everything goes. What stays in Vegas, you know, happens in Vegas, stays in Vegas. That kind of attitude, basically. But you see, the Lord God is zealous for all of us, all, every aspect of our lives. In fact, Deuteronomy 4.24 says, For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. If you think about these fires that have been going on in California, they, they're not selectively like going down certain streets and, you know, just kind of going around a house and everything like that. I mean, typically, I mean, it burns whatever's in its path. Whatever is flammable, it'll burn. It doesn't discriminate. It just, it just plows through. And God is a consuming fire. He, want, he, he, he wants to be the Lord of your entire being, every aspect of your life. So not only is he a jealous God, but he says, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. I have to ask a question now. Is, is this in direct contradiction with Ezekiel 18 verse 20 and I'll read Ezekiel 18 verse 20 it says the soul who sins shall die the son shall not bear the guilt of the father nor the father that bear the guilt of the son the righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself it almost sounds like this is a direct contradiction right well the context or I should say the key is the third and fourth generations of those who hate me there's a quali qualification there. Those who hate me in the context is in idolatry. What God is saying is the nation or even the family that rejects worship of the true God, it's going to experience repercussions of that idolatry to the third or fourth generation for years, for generations to come. Now contrast the third and fourth with thousands. It says, of, but showing mercy... Uh, but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. Is that thousands of individuals, or thousands of generations? Who knows? I don't know. The point is, God's great mercy is contrasted here to his judgment, and his great mercy is toward those who love him and keep his commandments. So the Lord God, he is zealous. He wants all of you 
He wants all of me, all, every aspect of my life, and he's abounding in mercy. And so you have a, a relationship with a God like that. Who wouldn't want to worship him? Who would want to worship anything else or anyone else than the Lord God himself? Do we get to the third commandment, verse 7? You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. That word vain, the primary meaning of the word is deceit, lying or falsehood, but it also means emptiness, uselessness, and worthlessness. And uh, Leviticus 19.12, I think, covers both meanings in the word vain. It says, you shall not swear by my name falsely, nor shall you profane the name of your God. When I think of someone swearing by their names, by his name falsely, I think of all those prophets in the Old Testament when, when Judah was surrounded by the Babylonians and there was all these false prophets say, thus saith the Lord, you know, God's going to watch over you. Nothing bad's ever going to happen to you, you know, and, and God had spoken to his prophets and said, no, 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 they need to surrender to the Babylonians. This, I'm, I'm punishing Israel for their, or Judah for their rejection of me. And, and so the false prophets swearing falsely by God's name, but profaning the name of the Lord your God, you just have to turn on your television to pick up that, right? Or walk down the street. People just using God's name flippantly. And, and usually it's in a very profane manner. This is what this is talking about. We're told in Acts 4.12 that there is salvation, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no name, uh, excuse me, no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You know, the devil has taken God's name, the, the, the name that we're to call on to be saved, and he's cheapened it through profanity. And that's what's happened. It's just our culture. It's just cheapening. It's conditioning us uh, to just thinking that God is just nothing, basically. It says, the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. That always scares me because, you know, what, what we say matters to God. What we say matters to God. What we say flippantly, what we say meanly, it matters to God. The Lord's not going to hold anyone else guiltless who takes his name in vain. Proverbs 18, 21, death and life are in the power of the tongue. Death and life. You know, how quickly uh, can, can you or I just destroy or cause somebody to just crumble under our words because we use them so harshly? We speak so hard or we, you know, we wound and we kill with our words and, and death and life are in the power of the tongue. Jesus said this, Matthew 12, 36, but I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give account of it, uh, account of it in the day of judgment. So we get to the fourth commandment, verse eight. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, uh, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Hallowed it. Now I said that the law of God is for all people for all time. So does that mean we need to be celebrating or honoring the sabbath day well let me let me show you tell explain what i think and uh, if you disagree with me that's okay um exodus chapter 31 verses 16 and 17 
explains that the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath was a covenant between the Lord God and Israel. It says, therefore the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel under the old covenant. Now under the new covenant, Paul says this, in, second, in Colossians 2, verses 16 and 17, So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. The Sabbath was always pointing to Jesus Christ. What does it mean for you and I? Well, Hebrews, I think, says it well. Hebrews 4, verses 9 through 11. There, therefore, uh, there remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. Let us, therefore, be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. What rest is he talking about? He's talking about resting in the finished work of Christ on the cross. What's the opposite of that is legalism, trying to do things to please God, trying to do things to, 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 to earn, our, earn our righteousness. That's legalism, striving for that. We're to rest in our salvation and what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Isaiah spoke this to, the, to Israel in Isaiah chapter 30, verse 15. It says, For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, In returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and confidence shall be your strength, but you would not. The, 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 is, the Jewish people continued striving to earn their righteousness. We're not to do that. Mark 2, verse 27, Jesus was speaking about the Sabbath. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. In other words, it's God's gift to mankind. It's not a burden, it's a gift to mankind. Now, having said all that, it's good, I believe, it's good to set aside a day of ceasing from work. You know, we're doing that today. We're here, we're gathered together corporately to worship the Lord. Um, it's a good thing to do it. You know, if, if even in the natural sense, if you're, if you're just going, going and going and going and never stopping and never resting, it's, it's not healthy. We need that. We need that. God knew that. So it's good to set aside a day uh, ceasing from work uh, and to gather together to worship the Lord. But <clears throat> here's the thing, too. You notice that we go through the, all the different commandments and stuff. Paul never says this in the New Testament. He never says, let no one judge you in regard to sexual immorality. You, you can't, I can't find that in my Bible. He doesn't say, let no one judge you in regard to murder. He never says that. But he does say that in regard to Sabbath observance. So there's a, there's a difference there. Um, interestingly, too, sometimes we just focus on the Sabbath rest portion of this commandment. But there is another aspect to it where the, where the Lord said, six days you shall labor and do all your work. So we're to be working. We're to be, we're to be like the Bible says, we're to be occupying until Christ returns. We never think about it. I'm just talking about the rest aspect. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 11 and 12 says that you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that you may walk properly towards those who are outside, and that you may lack nothing. It's good to work. We should work. We should be occupying. 
We shouldn't be lazy, but we should also rest. So that's my take on it. You can you can take it and whatever you want to do with it. That and about a two fifty will get you a cup of coffee at Caribou. Maybe maybe a little bit more. <laughs> All right. Fifth commandment, verse twelve: Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. You know, God created the family unit, right? The mother and the father, and if they're blessed to have children, that, that's that family unit. It's the most basic building block of society. And God's an or, a God of order and not of confusion. And so there's an order in the family. Father and mother have God-given responsibilities in raising their children, nurturing their children, instructing their children, disciplining their children in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. And anyone can see if you leave a child to themselves and you never interact with them, you never, you never instruct them, you never discipline them, they have a sin nature and it becomes evident because they, they just, they do whatever they want. You know, that, that, so there's this, we're to honor our fathers and our mothers, but there's a demonic inspired war going on against the family. And it's happening, and it's getting worse and worse. Um, there's a Proverbs. I always wonder, is, is this speaking of our generation? Or are we approaching this generation? Proverbs 30, verse 11 says, There is a generation that curses its father and does not bless its mother. I, I like watching Judge Judy. I don't know if you guys, some, I don't watch it all the time. I'm not like a Judge Judy fanatic, but I like watching Judge Judy. And... Uh, Teresa drives Teresa nuts sometimes, but my dad used to watch Judge Wapner. So, I mean, it's, it runs in the family, I guess. But uh, anyways, people's court. But uh, it just never amazes me or never ceases to amaze me when, when children are suing their parents and parents are suing their children. It's like, what happened to that familial love? What happened to that love that people have for each other? And we're, we're seeing that over and over again. There's a generation, and it could be our generation, but we're getting, if not, we're getting close to that generation that curses its father and does not bless its mother. This is the first commandment, by the way, with a blessing if it's obeyed. You know, many a person has paid a terrible price for their rebellion to the things that their parents have instructed them. I've got a Proverbs here. I want you to listen to it. It's the cry of the rebellious who's consumed by their sin. Proverbs 5, verse 12 and 13, it says, How I have hated instruction, and my heart despised correction. I have not obeyed the voice of my teachers, nor inclined my ear to those who instructed me. This is the cry of someone who's just, he's just they've just shunned advice, just shunned godly counsel, and now they're paying the price. And so we're to honor our parents. The sixth commandment, verse 13, you shall not murder. Now, Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount explained how the spirit of this commandment deals with the heart of man. Because, you know, we could sit there and go, well, I've never murdered anybody. but And people would think that, you know, I've never killed anybody. But Jesus said, hey, if you hate someone from the heart, the only difference is you've lacked the, either the opportunity or the courage to do it. But in your heart, you've done it. And God looks at the heart. In God's eye, the intention of the heart is no different than the physical act of murder itself. And, you know, going back to our words, we can murder people with our words when we gossip and, and backbite and we slander people. We need to be so careful that we don't do that. 
The seventh commandment, verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. By the way, there's no caveats here or anywhere else in Scripture. In other words, there is no time when adultery is justified, okay? No time. You shall not commit adultery. Again, same thing like murder. Jesus explained on the Sermon on the Mount that it deals with the heart of man. You can say, well, I've never, I've never had a, a, an extramarital you know, affair on my wife or, or on my husband or anything like that. And Jesus said, hey, if you lust after someone in your own heart, again, you may have lacked the opportunity or the courage to carry out, but God's looking at your heart and the intention of your heart is that you've done it. You're just as guilty. It's no different than the physical act itself. And, you know, we're talking about the physical act of adultery, but the, the spiritual act is also described in the Bible. In James 4.4, 4, James says, Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So we can be spiritual adulterers as well. Eighth commandment, verse 15, You shall not steal. Now, that seems pretty straightforward, right? Just like murder and adultery. So, you, know, they're, they're, you know, don't take something from somebody. That's kind of what right away you think about. But there's so many ways that people can steal. My, the most obvious thing, of course, is robbery or thievery. But the Bible has a lot to say about dishonest scales, cheating in our business dealings. That's stealing as well. Um, Here's another one that maybe people don't think about too often, but we can steal in this regard too. Romans 13, 8. Owe no one anything except to love one another. And we can rob people of our love through either unforgiveness or hatred. In fact, in Malachi, it talks about this in another place in Scripture. We can even rob God by not surrendering those things that are rightfully belong to him. Speaking of our time, our talents, and our treasure, we can steal from God. So we're not to steal. Ninth commandment, verse 16. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. False witness. Tailbearing. Lying about someone falls under this commandment, as does slandering someone behind their back. I think of the words of gossip or grumbling, murmuring, and complaining. This, is, this, I think, falls under this commandment. There's so many different ways that people bear false witness against one another. And the first one I mentioned is slandering or, or tailbearing, lying about somebody. But, uh, you know, sometimes you don't want to hurt someone, so you tell a little white lie, you know, just a little deception. Um, or maybe you're manipulating the situation, so you just kind of you just kind of fudge things just a little bit, you know. That, that's, that's lying. That's bearing false witness. Sometimes as a as a, a counselor doing pastoral counseling or, or maybe you're in between two different, you know, people, two people are at odds with each other and you're like right in the middle of it. And so you go to one person, they start explaining the story. And I've had this, I've seen this over and over again. Well, people will withhold truth in order to create a false impression. You always have to watch out for that, okay? Um, in fact, there's a Proverbs 18, 17. says, the first one to please his cause seems right until his neighbor comes and examines him. So you always got to be wise, you know, okay, I'm, I'm hearing you saying this, but what's the rest of the story, you know? Do that Paul Harvey thing. Um, uh, here's another one, Proverbs 26, verse 24 through 26. He who hates disguises it with his lips and lays up deceit within himself. When he speaks kindly, do not believe him, for there are seven abominations in his heart. Though 
Uh, his hatred is covered by deceit. His wickedness will be revealed before the assembly. That's, you know, you, you can't stand the person, but you got this fake friendship with them or, you know, you're, you're flattering them. In fact, Proverbs 26, 28, a lying tongue hates those who are crushed by it and a flattering mouth works ruin. So these are all ways that we can bear false witness against our neighbor. And we get to the 10th commandment. Verse 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. That word covet, it means to desire passionately, intensely. It even means to lust after our neighbor's possessions and even our neighbor's spouse. Anything our neighbor has, some, something that somebody else has. We can, we can desire it passionately. You know, there's uh, the first case of coveting, I think in the Bible, it, it really tells us a lot about the whole process of coveting. It's in Genesis 3, verse 6, speaking of uh, Eve. It says, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. There's a process that was described there. And you could, I mean, it's any sin, basically. But with coveting, you know, she looked upon it. She didn't have it. She was looking upon it. It was pleasant to her eyes. So she was spending some time thinking about it, looking at it. Uh, she saw that it was good for food. So in other words, she was imagining, boy, if I had that, man, I, that'd be good. That'd be a good meal, man. She's thinking about it. Uh, and uh, rationalizing her desire for it. Man, if, if, I, if I had that, it would make me wise. And, uh, and then finally, she took it and ate it. In other words, it, the fruit was within her reach. She was just lingering there at the tree. And she took it and ate it. And so she was in a position to act on her thoughts and desires. She had the opportunity, and so she took and ate it. And so, you know, you guys say, well, I don't know if that's coveting. But, you know, the process is the same. We look at what somebody else has, and we go, man, if I had that, that my life would be complete. And, and then we start thinking about what we do have. Yeah, man, that's lousy. I need what they have, you know, whether it's their spouse or whether it's their possessions or whatever it is. Coveting is so, it, it's a sin that, you know, even as we're saved, we're born again, we're cleansing the blood of the lamb, and it's still one that we struggle with, right? It's so, it's so insidious, and it starts in our minds. The writer Ecclesiastes, Solomon, said this in chapter 5, verse 10. He who loves silver will not be satisfied with silver, nor he who loves abundance with increase. This is also vanity. We can fool ourselves thinking that if I just had that, everything would be great. Jesus said this, Luke 12, verse 15. Take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. There's a more to life than your possessions. 1 Timothy 6, verse 6 through 10. Now godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into a temptation and a snare, and to many uh, foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for, for which some have strayed from their faith in, in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows, desiring, coveting wealth. Hebrews 
13.5 says this, Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. See, when we're unhappy with what, with what the Lord has given us, we're really complaining about the Lord because he's the one that's given us those things. We're saying, God, you're not treating me right. You're holding back from me, and they have what I want. That, that's that whole covenant thing. So these are the Ten Commandments or the Ten Words of the Law, the Law of God. Again, going back to Deuteronomy 33, it says, From his right hand came a fiery law for them. God's intention is that his law would be written on the tablets of our hearts. We wouldn't just have it in a Bible, but it would be on your and my hearts. And this is not a list that, you know, if we could just keep it, we'll earn our righteousness, we'll be good to go. What it's, what it's meant to do is it's meant to reveal you to you and I our inability to meet its requirements, the righteous requirements of the law. And then it's to draw us to Christ. That's the, whole, that's the whole reason for you and I today looking at it this morning. Paul says this in Galatians 3.24, Therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might, might be justified by faith. So we look at this and we go, man, I, I, I've already sinned, I've already broken every single one of these commandments. But praise God, Jesus Christ fulfilled the just requirements of the law for you and I. It's to point us to him. Now, during Jesus' ministry, of course, he was getting all kinds of questions, but someone came up to him at one point and said, Hey, Master, what's the first commandment? In other words, what's the most command, best or the most important commandment of all? And Jesus answered him, Mark 12, 29, says, This is the first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second like it is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. You see, if you and I would love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, all our mind, all our strength, we would fulfill the first tablet, the first, uh, the first uh, tablet worth of requirements of the law, right? The, the, those that regard a relationship to God. If we would keep, if we would just love God, that would take care of it. If we would love our neighbors as ourselves, we would fulfill the requirements of the second tablet of the law that, that all deal with our relationship to man. Paul said this, Romans 13, verses 9 through 10, For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet, and if there is any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Man, if, if, if I love God with my whole heart, I'm not going to worship any other gods. I'm not going to take his name in vain. I'm going to rest in his salvation. I'm all these things. I'm going to do all these things. And if I love you with all my heart, I love you as much as I love myself, I'm never going to cheat you. I'm never going to, you know, lie about you or anything like that. And that's what, that's what the Lord Jesus Christ is saying. You see, for you and I, the goal or the key for us is love. We need that love. We need the love of Christ in our hearts. So we get to verse 18. It says, Now all the people witnessed the thunderings, the lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpet, 
and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood afar off. You know, and I, I think of it too, when, you know, reading the word of the law here. I mean, I, I can't go through this list and go, well, it doesn't apply to me. No, it does apply to me. It applies to you as well. Then they said to Moses, you speak with us and we will hear, but let not God speak with us lest we die. You see, it brought fear into their lives. And Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you that his fear may be before you so that you may not sin. So the people stood afar off, but Moses drew near the thick darkness where God was. You know, I, we go through this chapter, and it's, it's a pretty somber chapter. And it, and it, you know, again, I read it and I go, man, I'm guilty. And, and I'm fearing, you know, a right, you know, hey, I fear judgment. It's good to have a fear of the Lord. It's good to have a fear of the healthy, not a fear that he's going to destroy us but a reverent fear of him. But praise the Lord God, Jesus Christ fulfilled these requirements for us so that, so that we can walk in no guilt, we can walk in completeness, and we can walk in forgiveness and love for one another. And so for you and I, and I know for me as well, it's, it's Lord, I need to love you more, and I need to love your people more. And so that would be the prayer, I think, for all of us this morning, that we would just love one another more and love God even more than that. I think if we did that, we'll be okay. Right. Hey, why don't you stand? Let's go, Lord, in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word this morning. And uh, Lord, I, just like the people that were hearing, uh, the, 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 seeing the mountain shaking or the smoke and the thing, Lord, we're just knowing that you're an awesome God. You're a, a just God. You're a holy God. And Lord, just going through these Ten Commandments, just as we examine them and in light of our own lives, we see how easily, Lord, how, how far we are from your commandments, Lord. Lord, we're guilty, and we know we are. But, Lord, thank you that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for us. Lord, to, to, to live that righteous life that none of us were able to live, to pay the price that none of us were able to pay. Lord, you, you died on the cross, and then you rose again. And I thank you so much that you offer your forgiveness to us. Even this morning, Lord, if, if there's things that we look at this list and there's things that we, we know that we're guilty of right now, things that we haven't confessed, things that we're dealing with, maybe we're practicing sin right now. Lord, I thank you that we can come to you and your word says if we confess our sins that you're faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Lord, we read of your holiness, we read of your judgment, but Lord, we also read of your abundant mercy to each one of us. And Lord, this morning, we need your mercy. We don't, we don't want your justice, Lord, we want your mercy. And so Lord, I pray for your mercy upon each one of us. And Lord, may we be so filled with our love for you, Lord, that those first commandments wouldn't even be an issue for us that we would love you from all our heart, Lord, that you be Lord of every aspect of our lives. And Lord, may we love our neighbor just the way we love ourselves in such a way, Lord, that we would never do any of these things. We would never cheat, steal, murder, hate, commit adultery, all those things. Lord, we wouldn't do it because we love our neighbor so much. And so, Lord, fill us with your love. Lord, that's an agape love that none of us, we, we, we don't have it within ourselves, Lord. It only comes from you. And so, Lord, we ask you to fill us with your love this morning. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray.
Amen. You can be seated.